Isaiah 48, passage the Lord has for us this morning. If you've been going with us through this book, you know that this book roughly divides into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 to 39, really can be summarized with the word judgment. The judgment of God, the justice of God upon wrongdoing, evil, and sin that, listen to me, deserves deserves wrath. I mean, is would it not be evil not to be angry at wickedness and injustice? To see injustice done and to say, well, it's no big deal. That would be wicked indeed. And it is God's holiness and His righteousness and His justice that moves Him to display His judgment and His wrath on wickedness and sin. And this whole first half of the book really emphasizes that, although you get glimpses of his grace coming through all through that as well. The second half of the book, beginning in chapter 40, opens on a new note. And the very first words of that chapter are the words that really summarize the second half of the book. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak comfortably to them and tell them. Tell them what? That their hardship is ended. Their judgment is over. The, the, the hardship of God's wrath upon them is, is done. Why? How could God's wrath against their sin ever be taken away? He says, because your iniquity is pardoned. Your wrongdoing against me that brought down my righteous wrath is taken away. Well, how could that ever be? And the very next thing he says is that your sin, your iniquity has received double from the Lord. By that, he doesn't mean that sin gets double the punishment that it deserves, but it, it, it gets the exact thing that it does deserve. It's like if you have a blanket and you fold it over double, and the one, the top of it is the exact double of the bottom. It's the exact match. So the Lord is saying, your sin has received exactly in every degree what it deserves, and because of that, your iniquity is gone, and because of that, my judgment, your hardship is, is finished. This is the tone of the second half of this book. And in that proclamation of the good news, there are three voices that are commissioned. There is a voice of preparation commissioned to prepare the way for that message to be received. A voice in the wilderness crying, make way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Receive him. And of course, that we know is the voice of John the Baptist crying out, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Repent and be ready for his kingdom. The voice of preparation. And then there is the voice of promise that came next in Isaiah 40. And he says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. You have my eternal word on this. And then you have the voice of proclamation where those who receive mercy are called to proclaim that mercy, to go up on the housetops on the highest mountains and proclaim, behold your God. And that really is the theme of the first eight chapters of this second half of the book. Behold your God. You could say that chapters 40 to 48 in this book could be summarized in terms of theology. That is the study of God himself. And hasn't, been, hasn't it been a really rich theology that we've seen unfolded in these chapters? We have seen the unfolding of God's holiness, that he is incomparable, that there is no other God like him. There is no other God in all the world. There is no being like him. He is unique, one of a kind. He alone is God. He is holy. We have seen his immensity, how he transcends time and space. He is far beyond us in every way. We have seen also his wisdom, 
his wisdom in himself, not an external wisdom by which he has to, to which he has to conform, but a, a wisdom that springs from within, by which we measure wisdom. It is himself who is wisdom. And then we learned that he is independent of all things, the aseity of God, that God is God in and of himself. He has his being from himself. He is not dependent on any creature, on anything outside of himself. He alone is, and he is himself. He is God. He is independent. We've seen in these chapters that he is powerful, that he is sovereign. He rules over all. He does his will in heaven and on earth. He does it. Everything that he chooses, he accomplishes it. He is sovereign. We've seen in these chapters that he is faithful, that he fulfills everything that he determines to do, that he doesn't decree and then turn back on what he has chosen to do, but he faithfully fulfills all of his purposes to their very ends. And we have seen his mercy and his grace because he's unfolded in these chapters as a God who is the Holy One of Israel, but who is the Redeemer of Israel. That theme has come up again and again, isn't it? I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer. We see in that term His mercy and His grace coming through. I will redeem my people. I'll buy them out of their brokenness and their their slavery, their indebtedness. I will call them to myself and make them mine. I will redeem them. That is our God. That's who is the focus of this gospel. God is the gospel. Behold your God. And chapter 48, now we come to the final chapter of that great section of theology. And the theme of this chapter is that salvation is ultimately all about God. It is all about God. It is of Him. It is through Him. And all the glory goes where? Back to Him. Salvation is of the Lord. God is the one who receives all the glory. And praise the Lord, it is that way. Because if salvation were up to our ability, our responsiveness, our goodness in some way or another, friend, every one of us would be damned. But the Lord saves for His own name's sake. And so we have hope. That's where this chapter is going. And it begins... If you look at verse 3, or excuse me, verse 1, I guess that's a good place to start. If he begins by calling out to a very stubborn people, right? Hear this. You see him calling out? You hear the Lord calling this morning? Hear, oh, house of Jacob. Listen to me, you who are called by the name Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, right? This is their heritage. He's reminding them by these names of their heritage, that they are blessed. They are descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. They are the chosen people. Hear me, he says, you who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. Here he's speaking of their confession, the words that come out of their mouth that acknowledge him as the one true God. But in the end, he says, you swear and you confess, but, look at the end of verse 1, but not in truth or right. Many of those people were off so often so far from him. 
while they confessed his name and while they were descended from the right family, they were, in many cases, very hard-hearted toward the Lord. And he goes on and he says in verse 2, For they call themselves after the holy city, and they stay themselves, or they lean or rely themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. But look at verse 4. I know that you are, are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. Imagine how it would be if your neck, right now you can move your neck around, how it would be if the sinews in your neck were made of iron. There is no bowing here. I will not bow before this God. I will be Lord of my life. Thank you very much. This is the situation with the people who were named by his name, who confessed the one true God. They were stiff-necked, unwilling to bend or yield to him, and their foreheads were like brass, hard-headed, we would say, right? I mean, the, the thoughts of the Almighty could not penetrate into their minds. They were walled up. They had no willingness to receive, to think God's thoughts after him. They were determined to be right in their own minds. And the Lord appeals to them over and over. Look how many times in this text you have this kind of thing where the Lord is calling out to them. You have it right here in verse 1. Hear this. But look down in verse 12. Listen to me, he says again. In verse 14, listen. In verse 16, Hear this, right? Over and over again, the Lord is calling out to His people. And you know, friends, that is grace, isn't it? It is grace for the Lord to call out to you again and again and call out to you in your stubbornness and your hard-heartedness and to, and to implore you to listen and to come and to heed what He has to say. I mean, how many times did the Lord send these stubborn people His prophets to preach to them yet again His Word? How many times... Did he warn them before he brought judgment on them? How many times did he appeal to them to turn from their sin? How many predictions of impending judgment did he make to them? This is all grace. And I can't help but think of how many sermons that you and I have sat under and known the Lord calling to us in those sermons. How many times of reading his word we have felt him imploring us to bow the knee, to bend the neck, to let his words penetrate our minds and our hearts. How many times we have been convicted. This is grace. It is grace that the Lord calls again and again and again to his people. Do we take that grace for granted, any of us? Is there anyone in here who presumes on the mercy of God? These people were being beseeched by the Lord to listen, to hear Him. And in verses 3 to 5, secondly, we see that He reminds them, He reminds them of how He brought about what He calls the former things. He reminds them of how He brought them about, these former things. And the, this section goes from chapter th- verse 3 down to the beginning of verse 6. And if you look in the middle of verse 6, you can see He sort of shifts Um, topics a little bit because he stops talking about the former things and he starts talking about new things. But verses 3 to 6, the beginning of verse 6, he talks about, he reminds them of how he brought about the former things. Verse 3, the former things 
I declared of old. That's how he did them. Did it. He declared them of old. They went out from my mouth. I announced them. Then, suddenly, I did them. And they came to pass. So you can see he's talking about the manner in which he brought about the former things. How did he bring them about? Well, he says, first of all, by way of prediction. He told them ahead of time. He declared to them these things from of old. He announced them. And then, suddenly, he did them, and they came to pass. So let me raise a couple of questions here. The first is what these things are. What are the former things that he's saying that he had predicted from long past, and he had brought them about? Well, I think it's probably obvious to most of us that that he's referring to great deliverances of the past, something these people have already experienced. So they're looking back on it, and we know he's talking about positive things that have happened to them because their temptation is going to be to attribute those things to their idols. And so, he's talking about great deliverances in their past. And of course, the paradigmatic deliverance of the people of Israel was their deliverance from where in the past? From Egypt, right? That was the great deliverance of God for the Old Testament people up to this point. His deliverance of them from Egyptian bondage. And of course, that Hearkening back to the Exodus, that's been a big theme that's been woven throughout this uh, prophecy of Isaiah. And so here the Lord is making reference to those great deliverances of the past, particularly the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. And of course, that's still in view here. The redemption of Babylon, in fact, is spoken of in terms of the Exodus from Egypt. Look at verse 20. I'll just show you this again to kind of, we're kind of trying to get an idea of what is he referring to by these former things. And I'm saying that the great deliverance from Egypt was the big thing that would have been in their minds, and he's even using that as the way to couch their deliverance from Babylon. Verse 20, he says to them, Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare it with a shout of joy, proclaim it that the Lord has delivered them out of Babylon, send it out to the end of the earth, saying the Lord has delivered, he has redeemed his servant Jacob. And look at verse 21. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from them for them from a what? From a rock, he split the rock and the water gushed out. That's a clear reference back to the exodus of the people from Egypt and how God provided water to them. Remember, Moses struck the rock, water came out of the rock. And he's using that now as a a way to speak about their future deliverance from Babylon. Um, But really, he's going to have even something bigger beyond that in mind, a kind of new exodus where a rock is cleft and uh, pierce for them, and water of life flows out. But in terms of this section right here, he's reminding them of the manner in which he brought about these great deliverances of the past, primarily the Exodus. How did he bring them about? In what manner did he do that? Well, first of all, by way of prediction. He says, I told you of this long before I did it. And of course he did at least as far back as Abraham, some 600 or more years before the Exodus, God told Abraham, this is Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain, Abraham, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And of course, that was a prediction of the family of Jacob going down into Egypt during the time of famine, and they would be sojourners there in the land taken care of until the famine was over. You will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And then he said, and they will be servants there. 
And of course, that was fulfilled when a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph and put the people of Israel under subjugation and under slavery. And then the Lord said, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. The exact duration of their slavery was announced hundreds of years ahead of time. And then the Lord said, and I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And of course, that was fulfilled in the plagues that God brought again and again and again upon the people of Egypt until finally they were a broken people. And then the Lord predicted, and afterward, they shall come out of that land with great possessions. And of course, that was fulfilled in after the final plague when the Israelites just, I mean, when the Egyptians finally said, we've had enough, just take our stuff and get out of here. Take gold, just go. Everything that the Lord had done, he did by way of telling them hundreds of years before that this is exactly what he would do. I mean, five or six different specific predictions here about the Exodus all fulfilled in their time. So he says, I did this by way of prophecy. And secondly, look at verse 3 for another word that describes the manner in which he will do something. By the way, you know in English, remember back in your grammar class in high school, you learned that if you want to use a word that describes the manner in which you're going to do something, you call that an adverb. And oftentimes they end in a little signal that the letters L-Y, right? So look in verse 3 for a word it ends in L-Y, how is the Lord going to do this? He's going to do it suddenly. He said he did it suddenly. And of course, you remember back to the Passover, and uh, this thing had dragged on all of these plagues. And Pharaoh had said, all right, you people can go. And then he woke up the next day and said, no, I changed my mind. But when that last plague was about to come, the Lord said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pack your bags. I want you to put your shoes on while you eat, because you're going to go out, and you're going to go out quickly. When I finally bring this to pass, I will bring it to pass suddenly. I will bring it to pass quickly, and before the night is out, you're going to be out of Egypt. You're going to be down the road. In the middle of the night, you're going to exit that place where you have spent hundreds of years in slavery. Isn't that amazing? The Lord said, that's what I'm going to do. That's the way I'm going to do it. And of course, in, in some ways, the same thing happened when they were delivered from the hand of the Assyrians. that Remember that the Assyrian nation came and besieged the people of Israel, the people of Judah, Jerusalem. And the Lord predicted to Hezekiah that they would be delivered, that God would turn that army around and they would go right back home. And how did that happen? Well, one night they all went to bed and they were surrounded by hordes of Assyrians. And the next morning they awoke and the Assyrians were gone. And 185,000 of them lay dead out in the fields. I mean, suddenly the Lord brought to pass what he had predicted before. The Lord said, this is the way I did it. I want to recapture that for you. That's the way I brought these things about. Now, why? Why did God do them that way? And he's going to highlight that here. God delivered it this way, delivered them this way, because, he said, you see that word there? Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared to you from of old, before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, there's another word, set of words that indicates his purpose in this, his reason for this, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image 
commanded them. Why could they not legitimately say that? Because it was no idol that had predicted them. It was the Lord God who had told them what would happen. Not their false god, not their idol. And even though it had been prophesied to them long before, when it came to pass, when it actually came time for the Lord to bring His purposes to pass, it came about suddenly so that no one would say, you know what, I saw that coming. And so clearly, they did not bring that about. This was the Lord's doing, the Lord's alone. He did it that way in order that they might see that if they had eyes to see. It clearly was not the work of Baal or the work of Marduk or the work of some divine king. And like Israel, I think we are, people are often quick to attribute great deliverances that they experience to something other than, than the Lord. They attribute them to their, to their planning or their ingenuity, to their savings, their insurance. Oh boy, I'm sure I'm glad I had that. That saved me, right? Oh, my, 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 my savings, sure. I mean, that, that just got me out of a jam. That was the only way we survived. Boy, I'm so thankful I made that investment back in 86. I, you know, that's what kept us. Or they'll say, you know what, boy, I sure am glad we have such a powerful army and air force. Uh, that's the only way we're going to survive this thing. People attribute their deliverances to all sorts of things in the world. But the Lord has done some things in such a way, he said to his people, I have done these things in such a way that they cannot be attributed to anything else but me. It is the Lord's doing and his alone. And his intent in doing all of these things is seen in verse 6. He says, you have heard, heard what? Well, the predictions that I've made. You've heard these things. Now, he says, see all this. See what? Well, see the fulfillments, but more than just see them happen. Um, In fact, this is not even the normal word for see or just seeing something, you know, like I see Gabe right in front of me. It's not just that kind of word. It's a word for perceiving, for a kind of vision of visionary seeing, really grasping something, seeing the deeper reality here. And what the Lord is saying is, you've heard me predict all these things. Now see how I brought them to be fulfilled, but not just see them. See that this was me. This was me working these things out. Acknowledge that it is my doing. And then what he wants them to do, look at the end of the verse. Will you not what? What's the last thing? Will you not what? Will you not declare it? The Lord has done this. He wants to open their mouths and put that word in their tongues that God has delivered his people. And that is always God's great purpose for redemption, that his people would open their mouths and declare his praise. And we'll continue to see that as the chapter goes on, Lord But I want you to turn our attention now to the middle of verse 6. And uh, the Lord begins now to speak about new things. New things. In the immediate context, these new things that will come to pass for the people are, well, the raising up of King Cyrus of the Persians. The Lord has been predicting that. The uh, overthrow of the nation of Babylon by the Persians that would happen, and the 
deliverance of the people from captivity and the restoration of Jerusalem. These things are about to take place and the Lord is predicting to them new things. But I think there's something more than just that. I think there's something that looks beyond that. Here's part of the reason I think that. When the Lord speaks about Cyrus, this Persian king, he uses language that is far exalted from what you would expect the Lord to use of a pagan king, right? Back in chapter 44, verse 28, he called Cyrus the shepherd of my people, the shepherd of my people. Back in chapter 45, verse 1, listen to this, he called Cyrus my anointed, my, what's another word for that? Starts with an M, my Messiah. He's my shepherd, he's my Messiah, These are terms that are used for the promised son of David, right? And if you look down here in verse 14, look what he says about Cyrus here. The middle of verse 14, the Lord, the Lord loves him. The Lord loves him. He's my shepherd, my Messiah, whom I love, who will bring about deliverance for my people. Do you think there might be something beyond an immediate view here? I think it is clear that the Lord is looking beyond this small M Messiah to the Messiah and that his intent is typologically to point to a greater reality that is to come. I think it's a little bit like what Spurgeon said that, you know, when the, when the sun comes out in the morning, when the sun rises in the sky and illuminates that sky, then the moon fades into obscurity. You don't even see that. The moon is still out there, but you don't notice the moon. Why? Because the moon is only a pale reflection. It doesn't have any light of its own. It's only a pale reflection of the light of the sun. And when the sun comes out, that's really what it's all about. That's really, it, it just, it far outshines anything else. And so Cyrus is the, the Israel's Messiah. Cyrus is their deliverer. He's their redeemer but he's far outshined by the Redeemer who is to come. So these new things really see beyond a deliverance from Babylon to a new exodus, an ultimate redemption, the redemption of Christ Jesus from sin, from its penalty and its power and even the presence of sin, deliverance, freedom from all of that being brought into the true Jerusalem, the new heavenly Jerusalem as the people of God. And of course, already back in chapter 42 and 43, we saw this term, new things, being used in connection with the Lord's calling of this figure that is known as my servant. And that servant, the Lord will continue to talk about that servant in the very next chapter, beginning in chapter 49 and running all the way through for many chapters now. The Lord is going to unfold who this servant is, what he will be like. And we are not to merely be looking at Cyrus. We're to be looking beyond any earthly servant the Lord has, any sort of typological servant that the Lord has, to the great servant of the Lord who will give himself for his people Isaiah 53, so that they might be redeemed from all of the sin and judgment that they deserve. This is the double that the Lord will will give on behalf of his people so that they might be delivered and might receive comfort from his hand. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 10, the Lord says to his new people that they should sing a new song in response to the new things that he does. 
In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2, he says they will be called by a new name. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 8, the offspring of Jacob will be like new wine. In chapter 65, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And Jeremiah, when he speaks of these things, speaks of them in terms of a new covenant. These things are also described in verse 6, not only as new things, but as what else? Hidden things, right? These new things are hidden things. This is the language of mystery, something that is revealed only in shadows, only to those who really have eyes to see them. Not that, so so he's, he's not saying, I'm telling you the gospel, these new things, as if it's the first time he's ever said any word about the gospel. No, the gospel is as old as Genesis 3.15, right? In the very act of condemning humanity, the Lord gives hope that he will do for them what they cannot do for themselves, what they have failed to do in obedience to him. He will do for them in the seed of that woman. So this is not the first time that the gospel has ever been declared, but rather that it has never been declared before with this degree of clarity and specificity as it will from Isaiah chapter 49 and onward when the Lord continues to unfold in great detail who this servant will be and what he will do. So the former things, he says, were revealed from long ago. They were announced far ahead of time. The new things have been hidden in the past, but now they're beginning to be revealed And just like with the former things, God tells us why he's working this way with regard to the new things. Look in verse 7, 7 and 8. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, behold, I knew them. I knew them. As if the gospel was merely a matter of human inventiveness or initiative. On the contrary, he says to them in verse 8, You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been, what? Your ear has not been opened. Why? For I knew you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. So the question is, why did the Lord reveal the gospel to Israel only in types and shadows and hidden forms? And his answer is he knew that they were a people who would be treacherous and rebellious. They didn't have ears to hear. I mean, they heard all of these prophecies of God, but they didn't really what? They didn't really listen. They didn't really hear in that deepest sense. Isaiah chapter 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? He was despised and rejected, right? We esteemed him stricken of God, getting what he deserved. That was their response. And really, it's the same reason Jesus said that he spoke to people in his day in parables, right? In hidden, veiled ways. Why? So that it might be obscured from those who don't have eyes to see, but that those who are given sight, those whose ears are opened, they get it, they hear. In this sense, national Israel was the exact opposite of Christ, the true Israel, because in verse 8, he says to this nation, your ears have not been opened, but Christ says the exact opposite. 
Listen to the words of Jesus in Psalm 40, verse 6. And we know it's the words of Jesus because this psalm, these very verses are quoted by the writer of Hebrews and attributed to the mouth of Jesus when he came into the world. He said, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, O God, but you have given me an ear to hear, an open ear. You have given me an open ear. To the Lord Jesus were revealed all of the mysteries of God. In him all of these mysteries were fleshed out. Burnt offering and sin offering, he says, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. What a difference it is, right? That voice from those people who were hard-headed, who were stubborn, who were disobedient. What a different response altogether, even from what characterizes so often you and I. Spiritual hard-headedness. Isaiah himself will also make the same contrast with the Lord's servant, the Lord's Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 50, we'll get to it in a little bit. Verse 5, again, this is Christ himself speaking. And he says this, The Lord God has what? Opened my ear. Of Israel, he said, their ear has not been opened. But here is the one who says, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. Talk about those people being rebellious and stiff-necked. Here is one who says, I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That is the voice of the Savior who endured the cross in obedience to the Lord in order to provide redemption for his people. How different that is from the rebelliousness of Israel and, in fact, the rebelliousness of all our natural heart. But here's what's amazing, okay? Back to our text. Here's what's amazing in this chapter, that in spite of their stubbornness, in spite of their hard-headedness, the Lord promised to be gracious. The Lord promised to defeat their captors, Babylon. He promised to deliver them, to restore Jerusalem. He promised them redemption and salvation. And I'm going to ask now, why? Why would God do that in spite of what they are? Why would he not just destroy them? And here is his reason in verses 9 to 11. I want you to look at it again. Verses 9 to 11. Here is the Lord's reason for all of this redemption. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. I, I hold back. I hold off, pouring out more anger on you. For my name's sake, I'm doing that. You want to know what's God's explanation for their, their deliverance? He says, I'm doing it for me. For my name's sake. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. That is my anger for, for you. That, it, that I may not cut you off. Because that's exactly what his anger would do, should do, if it was only meted out in justice. Behold, he says, verse 10, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. How do you, how do you refine silver? You take it with all of its impurities, its, its dross, and you put it in the furnace. You heat that thing up until all of the dross is burned off and removed. Right? And that what you have left is pure silver. But the problem with these people is they were almost all dross. 
Back in chapter 1 of this very book, the Lord had said to them in verse 22, your silver has become dross. You're just a people just permeated with corruption. That was the nation that he was looking at in the time leading up to the captivity. A nation permeated with ungodly. You're all dross. So why, why did his furnace of affliction not just consume them all? Because, he says, because I was jealous for my name, for my glory. Verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So the Lord will save for his own name's sake his own character, for his own reputation, he chose them. He promised to them that he would do these things for them. He was intent to demonstrate his own glory, his own faithfulness. Ultimately, he was faithful to them. He was merciful to them, excuse me, for the sake of his own name, for the sake of his son. It was for the sake of him, for his son, that he delivered these people. God had chosen these people to be the channel of that promised seed of the woman in the very beginning. Remember that? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Where will that seed of the woman come from? Well, the Lord had chosen Abraham, right? Abraham will be the channel of that seed. It will come through Abraham. He had chosen Judah. He had chosen the house of David. And now, here was all of this threatened to be undone, finished off under his righteous wrath. Why did he preserve them? For the sake of his name. Because they were the channel through which the Christ would come. And God was intent on preserving that line from whom the Messiah would come. They were delivered because of their connection to Christ. And that's the reason anybody is saved. Isn't it? Because of our connection with with Christ. Not a physical connection like theirs. And theirs was a physical deliverance but a spiritual connection, a connection of faith that we have with the Savior by which we receive the ultimate salvation, not a deliverance from oppression by a foreign enemy, but deliverance from sin, from death. And that's the reason that the Lord saves. It is for his own name's sake. It's because of our connection with the Savior And this is a great encouragement that the Lord saves for his own name's sake. A great encouragement in times when we're dealing with the stubbornness of people, the hard-headedness of people, and we think to ourselves, what possible hope can there be that God would ever have mercy on them? They have pushed him out of their life again and again and again and again. What possible reason would be there to be to have any hope the answer is that the Lord saves not for their sake, but for his own name. And, and the truth is, you know, when we honestly reflect even on our own lives, we all recognize that there have been times when we have been plenty hard-headed and rebellious against the Lord, determined to do our own thing, grown cold toward him, ears get stopped up, we, can't, we don't listen. Why does the Lord save? Why does the Lord save anybody like that? For my own name's sake for the sake of your connection to me in the person of my son. Why does God forgive you, friend, over and over? Why do you have hope that he might just forgive you more? Why doesn't he just give up on you? Why does he pursue you and restrain you and chasten you and restore you? 
for my own name's sake. He does so because your life, if you're a believer, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your whole salvation is wrapped up, tied up in in the honor of his name. Your perseverance in the faith, your sanctification, your salvation is wrapped up, it's tied up in the honor of God's name. And he's done that in such a gracious way as to give us hope because you can mark it down, God is intent on vindicating his name. He will not let his glory be cast to the ground. He is a jealous God for his own glory, and rightly so. And ours is the hope and the blessing because of it, right? Salvation is not because of me. It's not for our sakes. Think about that. If salvation was for your sake, if salvation was because God looked down at you and he saw something good, something responsive, something positive, something helpful, something that kind of came up and met him halfway, how soon would you and I be lost? Because how quickly we would depart from that. We would all prove to be unworthy, unhearing, rebellious, hard-hearted, stubborn, and lose all hope we ever had. No, salvation is not because of you. It is because of who God is. And it is for his glory. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain and he said, God, show me your glory. And what did God do? God said, I will declare to you my God, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's my glory. That's my name. Why do I save you for my name's sake? That I might declare my glory, that I might put it on display that I might vindicate my name. This is why God saves. And he reminds us, even as he says those things, that he will by no means clear the, clear the guilty. And that is why our sin has to have its exact double. That is why none of us is saved apart from our connection to God in the person of Jesus Christ. But in Christ, in Christ, in, in, in God, we have all the hope in the world for our salvation is for his own namesake. What a blessing that God has chosen to yoke your salvation to his glory. For he is determined to glorify himself. So he who began a good work in you will most definitely continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Why? for his own namesake, for his glory, for his glory we are saved. What a sweet, sweet word for all of those who have ears to hear. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this word of of grace, this testimony of your saving kindness because of your own name. We pray that we may be recipients of that same grace. Lord, we ask now earnestly, we're asking you that you would continue the work that you have begun in us, that you would not allow anyone to be able to look at our lives 
and say that what you started, you don't finish. Please, Lord. We pray that you would pursue us, that you would chasten us, put us into the furnace of affliction, do whatever it takes, but do not, please, Lord, let your name fall to the ground because of Jesus. Amen.